James McDaniel is an actor and director best known for his award-winning performances on NYPD Blue, Detroit 187, and Edge of America. When he's not acting in front of the camera, you can find James on and off Broadway starring in works like Before It Hits Home, August Wilson's Joe Turner's Come and Gone, and most recently, A Soldier's Play. James also created the role Paul in Six Degrees of Separation, setting the stage for future Black actors like Will Smith, who reprised the role in 1993. His television credits include Orange is the New Black, Madam Secretary, and most recently, Hysteria, streaming on Amazon Prime. Other film credits include The Battle of Bunker Hill, Steel City, and Malcolm X, among many others. James McDaniel, welcome to the creative process. I'm glad to be here. I like it. The creative process. Yeah, it's been something you've been involved in all your life. It seems a little presumptuous of me to welcome you to it now. But um, <laughs> so um, I want to speak about your life as an actor, but just just reflecting on the drama that's going around us um, these days. I mean, what has it made you think of? Well, you know, the funny thing is, it sounds kind of outrageous, but um, what we're living through right now is not so similar to the way that I normally live my life. Yeah. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, mm-hmm. but um, I spend a lot of time in my head. That's yeah. just, just me, you know, thinking mm-hmm. of things. And I've been fortunate enough in my career that it's allowed me to be in my head and not under somebody's thumb a large portion of the time, you know. Mm-hmm. So I can think creatively and things like that. Um, it's, it's been, at 62 years old, um, I've learned so much in this last couple of months because mm-hmm. we're very ahead of the curve because I have a son that lives in China. Oh, wow. So this, this is almost like our second pandemic because, you know, we're just as concerned about his health and welfare um, from, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away um, starting uh, maybe January 10th or something yeah. like that. Since we were ahead of the curve, mm-hmm. um, we felt that a lot of our job was to exert our influence on our friends, family, people that we love, and kind of bring them up to speed. And the human principle of denial has been astounding to me. I I did not know the boundaries of denial um, stretched so wide until I was 62 years old. No, it's strange, because, yeah, it's true. We have these kind of belief in our own in, in invincibility, um, even if we think we're logical but when it comes to things like this, um, and, and, and poor math skills, I think, as well. Um, but um, So I'm, I'm glad that you're safe there, and, um, and that, so in your normal life, because you're an actor, because I always thought, oh, it must be especially difficult, because like, I'm a painter, well, I do interviews, I'm a painter, and I write, so a lot of that is already isolated, so I always imagine it must be more difficult for actors or dancers or people like that, but are you saying like when you're not acting, you you're withdrawing a little bit so that you're not well, as collected? You know, most of the, yeah, most of the time, um, as an actor, especially you know an actor that gets to a certain age where by you're more selective about your work. Yeah. Um, there's, there's there's much more time in between. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Because you yeah. you can you, you know you're working at a fairly high pay scale, so. You don't, you're not hand to mouth, so you're not like saying yes to everything that comes along. You have mm-hmm. to leave your life open 
to the possibilities of things that you really want to do with the people that you really want to work with and those people come along um, much more infrequently than you know Joe that has a script that is awful that you just want to work you know some actors are in that category where they just have to work uh-huh. well um, so I spend a lot of time reading podcasting using cooking um, you know in those off times because you know last year how many days did I spend on the set I don't know I haven't counted but compared to the you know 365 days it's fairly few fairly few you know so most of the time was either getting ready or seeking out uh, and, and just living my life most of the time golfing you know most of the time is, is that it's the rare times when I'm, I'm in front of the camera and actually, you know, plying my trade. Yeah. And there was a point, point in my career where, you know, I was, you know, I was working, you know, with my tongue hanging out. You know, I was, I was doing this this play downtown and then I was doing, and right after that I was doing another play downtown or uptown or wherever you have it. It's like you're just running all over the place, just, you know, um, learning your craft. Um, interacting with, you know, large numbers of people. But after a certain amount of time, you realize there's only a certain number of people that you really want to interact with. And let's just speak about your beginnings in, um, in in theater and as well as, I mean, you've been on such notable television shows as well. I can see how, like, after having a long run with those kind of punishing schedules, it's nice to it's nice to be selective and just, you know, it, take your time. It's, it's, a, it's a real luxury, that. But let's talk about your beginnings as an, as an actor. I don't, you didn't realize at first you wanted to be an actor. How, how did you come to it? Um,
So uh, speak about some of those early experiences. I don't know what the first what your first play was. Well, you know, you know, this first place and then this first place. Yeah, your first place. Yes. I mean, you know, I mean, if, if I wanted to be really, you would say first play, uh-huh. I would say, um, because the only other experience that I'd had, you know, growing up was that um, I performed at Damn Yankees as a senior in high school. Uh-huh. Okay, so that's before you go to college, you know. Um, I'm not exactly sure how I'm French this morning, but... Um, so, you know, you think about, like, you know, 17 years old, you know, just doing a play that, you know, where all the jocks kind of do a production of Dan Yankees. And later on, when I was in college, I reflected, you know, when, if, since I'm not going to be a doctor, when did I have fun? And my brain went to, I had fun doing theater. So, come to New York. I mean, technically, my first play was a play called Deadwood Dick. And I played a father. It was like a children's show in some theater. And, and, and in the second act, I played a horse in a horse costume. Okay? So it was, it was like that. And um, from there, you know, I had a lot of notable plays. You know, I, I won damn near every award that you could win, you know, off Broadway. You know, the oldest acting award in the country called the Clarence Thurman Award. I won the OV Award for, you know, during the AIDS epidemic. There were um, a lot of AIDS plays, as is um, Angels in America, all that during the, the Our Other Crisis. Yeah. And um, I had a play um, that was called Before It Hits Home, which was the black response to the AIDS epidemic. Um, and I, I won the OB for that. Um, I created the role of Paul in Six yeah. Degrees of Separation, which was a big, a big thing for me um, because that particular role, which was given to me before I had, what, you know, the, the stature that would allow me to get that job. Um, I, I got that role. Actually, the thing that really got it rolling was um, there was a show called um, A Soldier's Play, which they later made into a movie. And um, one of the lead characters was this young man that could play the guitar and the harmonica and blah, blah, blah. And he had no other study. And it was the type of situation where his father died in Kentucky. His name was Larry Riley. His father died in Kentucky, and the theater had no one to study for him. And he said that he was leaving after the Saturday afternoon performance. So they started looking at pictures and resumes, and they had me in. Fortunately, I could play the guitar and harmonica. I had no stage experience whatsoever. And um, I got that job to fill in for him. And um, I fill in while he was out of town. And then when he came back, I became his understudy and he left the show. Then I, I took over for him. And that's really where my education began. That's where I got my agent. That's where um, people started to think of me as actually being an actor, even though I was just pretending to be an actor. But that's where it all began. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And finally, I was doing this thing called Six Degrees of Separation, which turned out to be one of the, the, the most monumental plays at the time on Broadway, and then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, people really think I'm an actor, and then, you know, get the movies, you know, Malcolm X, and, and television, and, you know, things like that, and my career started to roll. Right. Yes, and speak about Malcolm X and, and Spike Lee, and um, your research process for that. Well, um, what happened with Malcolm X was, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'd seen, you know, Spike Lee's 
okay, fine, but they made a difference to me. I'm still going to do the show. And uh, the next morning, I get this call in my home, and it's Spike, and he's like, I don't know how he got my phone number. And um, he wants to come back and see the show, came back to see the show. We saw, and, um, we had dinner afterwards, and then he wrote for me, you know, Malcolm X. And um, so the, the process was that for two months or so before we began shooting, we um, kind of um, studied with, you know, the nation of Islam. And we were, you know, selling bean pies on the street, selling final call with the projects and all that kind of stuff, learning how to march, and, you know, mm-hmm. just doing our research and going through that process. So finally, when the film started, um, we were more or less on the same page. So that, that process was uh, very unusual, especially for the United States. Um, and it allowed us to be informed. And as a result, I think it was one of Spike's um, finest films. It's a rough shoot, you know. Um, He's not the most gracious directors, um, but um, we got it done. Um, I've never seen it. Oh. I don't, I don't watch any of my work. Oh, at all? Ever, ever? Wow. never seen any of my work. I'd, um, well, that's, it, it's very interesting. I think it's very, because um, I would be so curious. I'd want to be seeing, oh, well, how could I? What did I do? What was this? You know, but I, I understand that too. So that you really believe you are the role, and then you don't have to look at it because you were it. Right. Well, I mean, you know, it, you know, everybody has a certain technique, and a lot of times I say that to people that I've never seen my work. Um, people you try to convince me that I need to see it or something like that, but um, there's really no value in me witnessing my work any more than if this interview right here. Do I need to see this interview? Yeah. Or are we talking and exchanging ideas? Is that yeah. the thing that matters? Is that our minds are kind of melding with each other and we're talking about things? Well, that's the same way that I see acting, is that um, the I, James McDaniel, is unimportant. All I'm really doing is um, communicating through that character that I've developed. And one of the things that I really think spoils it is if I watch it, it will give me a perspective um, outside of myself. And I, I don't want a perspective outside of myself. Mm-hmm. I don't want the perspective of the world through the eyes of that particular character. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that I explain it is, uh, okay, you're, you're on the radio all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you think when you hear your voice? Yeah, I know. I, my voice is higher than I hear it in my head. Well, but see, but the, the, your reaction is the same as everyone else. Most people would say, oh, I hate it. That's why I'm going to be accustomed People say, I hate my voice. But I listen to your voice, and I think you have a perfectly lovely voice. You know what I mean? It gives me a picture of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing, I, I don't hear a lisp. I don't, I don't hear, I don't hear any excessive nasality. I don't, I, it, see, it sounds to me like you have a lovely voice, but you don't particularly, you weren't particularly fond of it. So what that means to me is that you are exactly the worst person in the universe to evaluate your own voice. The worst. Yeah, it's almost like um, myopia or something, or hypersensitivity to it, yeah. Right, so therefore, if that holds true with human beings, 
that I want to watch my performance is I am the worst person in the universe that can evaluate my, what I see. I'm sure it has risk, you know, to be then so aware of how you seem. And I think one thing that, you know, I love watching children and I love animal behavior as well. And I think that one of the reasons why um, children, you know, infants um, and animals have this kind of grace that's captivating to watch is precisely because they're not so aware of themselves. They're not, you know, crimping themselves in the mirror. I mean, um, and it's, they would think that that's so strange. So, um, and yet every, yeah. Exactly, because I think that what people are captivated by is vulnerability and all these things that, and we, and the natural thing about human nature is that we, not that we're necessarily vain, but we, we might want to eliminate those things that are vulnerable, that are exactly the things that are the most interesting. So exactly, exactly, and you know, I mean, and it's a particular problem that we have in American film too, where um, invulnerability is. It's what we turned ourselves into. Mm-hmm. We think that that is the most attractive thing. That is the thing that you must be. And mm-hmm. for me, that is the the last thing I want to be is, is a piece of granite. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it speaks to the whole craze of you know superhero movies and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. It's, it's, um, um, that's the last thing that I'm a fan of. But in terms of the actors or or any of your collaborators that you've um, have learned from or have, you know, really admire or, you know, uh, maybe helped um, contribute to the actor you are today, um, you know, in their approaches and, and what you loved about the exchange, if you acted with them or if you just um, watched them from afar? Um, I, you know, there's certain people that I've worked with throughout my career and obviously some of them you become great fans of and never want to see again. You know, I, I, I think that the vast majority uh, it really is, is people that you really don't don't care to work with again. Oh, because, okay. I mean, we're all so different. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? When, when I worked with James Earl Jones early in my career, oh, yeah. he had a TV show, um, I think it was called Paris, mm-hmm. that I 
trailer, it's, it's like there's enough room for you to lay down. And at the end of the, the little thing, it's like a little bathroom. And there's barely enough room to turn around. And I knock on his door, and he answers the door, and he's in there. And this is his show. And through working with him, I saw how um, he's what I wanted to be. He was he was egoless. And um, so you, you have those experiences, and you say, that's who I want to be. In an industry that is so based off of ego, and, you know, we know how actors are many times, you know, they act out, um, you know, they think they know more than they know, you know, they want the warm Perrier, not the cold Perrier. You know, they start to act like babies sometimes. And everything. But, but there, there, there are a group of, you know, Anthony Hopkins, there are a, a group of actors that, that really, that you become a fan of. Mm-hmm. And, and those are the actors that I kind of, uh, and, and the funny thing is, you get to the point that you can see it in their work. Mm-hmm. You know? You say, that's my kind of actor. Mm-hmm. That performance is egoless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a nice part. It's it's interesting how much, um, as you said, the eye is not important. How much, it's so much more, I, well, I find, so much more interesting. I find myself drawn to people who are really, like, engaged in listening, even if, if they're in active perform- performance with many lines. But it's that they're really so lost in the other characters. It's like an act of giving, but it draws your attention back to them through their very attention. Right. Well, you know, here's the thing: is people like I, I, I always seem to be attracted to the people that, that almost everybody's not looking at. You know. Yeah. You know, because those those are the ones, those still waters are the things that I think run the deepest. I mean, you know, right now, most people are looking at Kim Kardashian. Oh, wow. Well, or a part of her. Because, I don't know. Well, whatever that that thing is, whatever that thing is, there's there's no there there, but that's where all the eyes are going. Because, you know, one thing that I've, I've noticed, and I don't know much about her, and I'm not just picking on her, I'm picking on, on, on the syndrome, or yes. whatever that is, right? Um, I, I've noticed that, you know, in my, my daily news feed, even now, when coronavirus is, is everywhere, mm-hmm. and oh. I scroll down, eventually I will see a picture of her daughter's new haircut. Oh, really? Or her new yeah. It will definitely be in my newsfeed, and I don't understand why that is in my newsfeed, especially right now. Mm. But that's where the eyeballs yeah. are, you, you know? But I've, I've always been attracted, you know, seemingly to the things that are, for whatever reasons, that are kind of off to the, 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 the side, the thing that, you know, you could easily miss because there's not so much fanfare. But there is fanfare because there's a lot of thoughts going on. Good acting is very complicated. People think that it's easy, but no, good acting is very complicated. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have a huge respect for it because not only is it, yeah, there's an intellectual aspect and there's an instinctive aspect and then there's all 
particularly when it's on stage, but also, you know, film and television, also it's all happening in the moment where, you know, you must be processing all these things at once and you have to, you can't drop any of them or it'll collapse. So if you were to really be able to, you know, analyze, scan what goes on in an actor's brain, just like what goes on in a musician's brain when they're playing jazz or whatever, they, the number of uh, calculations and things that are being processed is, uh, I, I'm sure it can't be counted. Yeah, we're looking for flow, mm-hmm. you know, flow is like, especially on the stage, is, um, you know, maybe one, two nights a week. Mm-hmm. You actually get that flow, which is um, which is such a beautiful. That's why we do it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure that's why jazz musicians are excellent at that flow. We went recently to see um, uh, the Bela Fleck reflectors yeah. and uh, and the flow that was going on on stage was that you could see they're experts in flow. Yeah. And what are some of the things that you do, if you don't mind being open about it, too? I know that you can't always. I mean, it, that would be like you'd be a machine if you could always do it. But to put you in that feeling or to to get to tune in, you know, how do you tune in? Um, well, one thing that you do is that um, you, don't, you don't put stringent rules around it. Sure. You know what I mean? It's like, if that's not there, then you accept the fact. You know, yeah. it, it requires a certain. I, I find that the, the um, you know meditation things like that. Um, uh, the if, if you're on a stage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you should be. If, if someone peels a lemon in the audience, you should be able to smell it. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. you're alive to a sense. Yeah, but but it, it takes it takes you. Relaxation and, and, and flow and confidence mm-hmm. in order to be able to smell it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because otherwise you're so tense. To, yeah. you, 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 it's, it's, it's like it's something that cannot be rushed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, come on, imagine your first time on a stage. Yeah. It's like the only thing that you can see is the, is your script. You know, you can't you can't feel the fact that you have a, an inch on your knee. So it requires of uh, um, um, you working on yourself before you can before you can go deep. And the deeper you go, the more um, people can empathize with you. Uh, the, the way I would put it is, um, you've been in an elevator and everybody's in an elevator and. Um, Everyone's looking straight ahead. No one's looking into each other's eyes. But if something happens, everyone is having the same thought. All together, we we read each other almost through the airwaves. Yeah. But just empathy. That's what I seek when I'm looking for flow. Is that thing, especially on film. Because film can almost see into your your inner soul. That's what I love about film. You know, you don't have to you don't have to gesticulate. You don't have to act it out. You know, the closer you get to being it, the more people can um, can feel it. 
I'm Uwa Hayes, an artist, storyteller, and senior Africana Studies major at Howard University. As a Black woman trying to find a foothold in the entertainment industry, more specifically as a storyteller trying to write and create ways to communicate the nuances of being Black, I was drawn to this notion of doing self-work in order to delve deeply into a character. In this case, James was speaking about tuning in to an acting role, but the same is true when writing a story. And I think that's why character development is everything. You have to be able to look inwards, but also separate yourself from that character as the writer, or in James' case, as the actor. As a writer, I'm constantly asking myself, what would this character do or feel? An important distinction from what would I, Ua Hayes, do? I found the elevator metaphor interesting because really, what James seems, seems to be getting at is subtext. What he called airwaves, or what I might call energy, um, I think humans are highly intuitive and there's so many feelings and emotions and energies that we're able to pick up on or that we recognize on the scene on the screen and it's that energy that an audience or a listener relates to i think that's what i've always found interesting about the conversation of representation um a good story goes deep and it unearths those emotions that energy that subtext that thing that people relate to um, and that's the thing about good writing and good stories. When I was in high school, I loved teen dramas and I loved romantic comedies. I loved coming of age movies. I connected and empathized with characters because of the subtext and their emotions. Even if I didn't look like them, there were elements of their lived experience that resonated with me. It's a privilege to empathize with the character and feel those airwaves and at the same time look like the people on screen. And I think people isolate stories by saying only certain people can relate to a story or only one demographic will empathize with a black character when the reality is that people empathize with people. For those of us who didn't have physical representation, we had no choice but to find other ways to connect and relate to the stories and content we consume. I want to yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, but uh, you, so when you speak about flow and certain directors or actors you've worked with, um, because some people are hesitant to improvise. It's like a big thing, as you say, you know, it's, it's a big risk. But, you know, what are your experiences of um, improvisation or, you know, semi-improvisation because you're sticking to the script, but you're allowed permission to, to leave it when you need to? Um. Yeah. 
and I'm saying that so that I can walk out of the door and you allow me to walk out the door. You know what I mean? There's a million ways that you can do it, you know? Mm-hmm. If you use your mind and if you, you know. So the actual words have very little. The words are like the, uh, it's like going to the gym. It's like, yeah. okay, well, if I want this body, then I'm going to lift this heavy stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So the words are unimportant. The words, knowing all the words, has never made an actor a star. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing all the words, I mean, uh, you know, if that were the case, you could just open up the script and you could just read the words to people. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's what you do with the word. Yeah. There's so much in tone and subtext. It's like a musical on, on that level, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you can frighten people. You say, that was in a six degrees of separation. Yeah. There's a moment that this guy was a, a pretender, you know, yeah. a, they know oh. him pretending to be, he's a street kid, but he's trying to pretend to be something else he wasn't. City party, he's not some blue blood kid. Yeah. And at a certain point in the play, halfway through, um, we go into this thing where he has this gay lover and he comes in and the guys picked him up off the street and the audience who has been seeing this kid in penny loafers, well-bred, all of a sudden he speaks, and he speaks like a street kid, like one sentence. I used to love saying that because I would say that line halfway through, and there would be almost an inaudible gasp that the people with Lincoln Center would have because all of a sudden they feel like, holy moly, this is like a, a street person. But it was because of the way those that one sentence was said. Now we just listen very closely to that. Um, I can't remember what the line was. It was something like, you know, uh, I can't even remember what the line was. I know the part but, in the play, but I don't have it to, to mind exactly. Um, it was something like he was inquiring something about how, what it was like to be rich, you know, it must be very difficult being the rich, you know. I mean, you know, because the guy was trying to tell me the difference between sofa and couch and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And and, um, and and he says that in the audience. He says, ah. and, mm-hmm. and, and I spent a long time trying to figure out what that was. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, how could that guy that was so erudite, so like the people who were sitting next to me in the theater at mm-hmm. Lincoln Center, yeah. how could that same guy be that guy that I tried to avoid on the street. Yeah, we thought he was one of us. Yeah, we thought he was one of us. Relax with him. Like, if he could be who looked like one of us, but then all of a sudden sound like one of them, mm-hmm. what is going on? Mm-hmm. Who could I trust? There was like, a, there was always this like little, it was just an inhale of breath almost all at the same time. It was just like, <laughs> and um, that's the power of it. You know, that's finding that, finding that truth was uh, something that I was kind of, it was, it was a sadistic moment for me every <laughs> night that I enjoyed quite a bit. Yeah, and that's exactly like something in an, in an, an, an actor who didn't know know their stuff would kind of miss it and just go right over it. <laughs> so you do have to be so, so attentive, I can't imagine. Yeah. I probably I probably missed that myself for a long time mm-hmm. until 
Uh, well, you know what? I probably I must have missed it during rehearsal because there was no audience there. Yeah, because they're yeah they're coming to the show. Yeah, you, you say it on the first night of the show, and then you get that reaction, and then all of a sudden it explains what's happening to you. You knew what was happening, huh. but you did not know the impact of what it was until the audience showed you. So it's, I'm just thinking about um, since Six Degrees of Separation and oh, it's strange because it's a, yeah, a play about class and it's a play about race and, uh, you know, I thought that a lot of things, I thought I'm idealistic or optimistic, I thought that we passed uh, through a lot of these things and certainly some people have, but the, it, it returns, it's returned in recent years notably and I don't want to go off on a tangent, but um, it never went away. Yeah. It never went away. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, I, I can't speak to France, mm -hmm. but I mean, the world is the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I travel around my country. I travel around the world actually quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing I notice is whenever I'm on Martin Luther King Boulevard, um, there's always some, you know, it's supposed to be nonviolence, but there's always some violence going down. The, the streets look dingy, look dirty. Um, and it's, it's, you know, you look around the world, wherever there are dark people. Um, I, I, you know, I'm concerned about my children. When I'm, when I'm, you, know, you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. like, okay, these are where the, the dark people live on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, there's less money, there's less education, there's less clean water, there's less this, there's less that. We have a kind of an apartheid in different parts of the world to different degrees. space in San Francisco, though, I mean, after, you know, when they're released, where are they going, who's renting in the most, one of the most expensive American cities, I don't know, <laughs> what's, um, but yeah, it does tell you that they weren't, those were incarcerations that were part of the prison industrial complex, and um, I, I did an yeah. interview not too long ago with someone who said, uh, who believed, Nicole Fleetwood, and she's done um, three exhibition. It was supposed to be shown at um, PS uh, MoMA, um, but now everything's cancelled, but uh, prisoners' artwork, and, and she believes that she, you know, in the abolition of prisons. Um, I mean, I don't see that happening in America, but it, it does need to be remedied. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, one of the things about this whole thing is that it's brought so much stuff to light about um, who we are. I mean, you know, speak, 
thinking you know, from the artistic standpoint. It's like, you know, not wanting to be a fan of yourself. Uh-huh. You know, one of the things that we're starting to figure out is that we become such fans of ourselves. It has made us ignorant to who we really are. You know, America first. Yeah. Why America first, exactly? Why? Why America first? I mean, why? Why do we always say America is the greatest country on earth? Why? Why do we say that? Because I know if I walk onto a set and I say, "Hey, how are you? I'm James McDaniel, mm-hmm. greatest actor on the face of the earth." <laughs> People will leave your company. <laughs> traveled a lot and I think that there's a great number of you know international Americans and I think that that might be more aimed at people who didn't have the opportunity to travel so much and so I mean I believe in internationalism in our project we have I'm honored to say um, contributors from over 70 countries you know so I and you know English is our primary language because that's what a lot of people speak but then we have things in translation so I think that the more you travel, or just even even if you don't travel, if you just have conversations with people who are from all over, um, it kind of makes it difficult to, I mean, there's so many great things about America. I was born in America, I have a family there, um, I come there very frequently, and, they're really, and there's wonderful uh, arts, and there's wonderful philanthropy, and you know, technology, and all these things are, are great, and it has a democratic system, as do most developed, I don't even like that word developed because it's charged, but you know, as do most developed nations, you know, who have <laughs> their working democracies and some of them actually have working healthcare systems that are for all, healthcare for all, and some other things, you know. Um, so, I do think it's a great a country. <laughs> Sorry? Do we, do we have a democracy? Yeah, that's, it's questionable. You have, we, I think, it, I think in many cases there's the potential and, and it's, and it's, corrupted by lobbyists and you know there's all sorts of things that I think I think that it's just too expensive I think that most people are kind of appalled uh, when they hear how long it takes for the American elections to take place and how much it costs to even be a candidate it's, um, it, it's it kind of invites corruption well I mean you know I mean I, I should you know, I love my country. I mean, this is where I'm from. You know, this is where my ancestors are from. But at what point, you know, you, you can't just say democracy, democracy, democracy over and over again if you see signs that it's not really a democracy. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I also love my own people, you know. And, you know, I, 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 I still see what's, what's going on. I mean, you know, me as an artist, mm-hmm. I think in my younger years, the reason that I, I kind of, look, I do the same thing over and over and over again. I do one thing, and mm-hmm. I, I've never talked about this ever, but I don't really care anymore now. Yeah. Because, you know, um, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter because, you know, effectively, I think, uh, uh, I, I feel as if I'm going to retire from this art form anyway because I can't, 
I can pretend to, to create a, a mysticism around it. You know, Picasso used to say that he's the greatest living artist, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the greatest artists of all time. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, at least he um, put the hours in. <laughs> I could say that for him. <laughs> yeah, he put the hours in. He put the hours in, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I know, I know what I was talking about. I was saying I, I, I've always done the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that appeals to me is that my little special sauce has been that I'm trying because maybe my anger, my frustration, what have you, my intellect. Mm-hmm. I've always tried to show the world that people that look like me. Uh, actually do have emotions mm-hmm. and sensibilities and faiths, humanity. So I've just done that over and over and over again. That's mm-hmm. really the only thing I keep my eye on. Yeah. And it sustained me throughout my whole career. Just that one thought over and over again. What do you think about that? I think I think it's a great, I don't want to say, it's a big responsibility to, to shoulder to to have to stand in as a representative. If, if you feel, and I understand that I'm also a person of color, of uh, Eurasian. Um, I don't know that I, I'm not a face, you know, I'm more like asking questions or something. So, um, but I, I, I do reflect on that, is that, okay, you can't, it's almost like um, for people who are in the dominant, um, race or like for who are just accepted to be people automatically they're the baseline um, they can just be great actors or actresses they don't have to like oh also be a spokesperson and a representative uh, for all of their people <laughs> and I can't, I can't imagine what that's like I know you're not like feeling like a spokesperson but I do know what you mean you want to with each performance command a certain dignity or I imagine you know, inspire certain. Like... I, I, you know what? I, you know what? I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm further along that line. I mean, oh, okay. I'm, I'm sure. I'm I, I right. think I'm further along that line. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not here to um, not air my dirty, my people's dirty laundry. Yeah. I don't feel like that does me any or us mm. any um, has, has any real intrinsic value to me. I'm not one of those people. I'm not there saying. You know, I've got sparkling white teeth. It's perfect all the time. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is, is that when I work, I work free of the shackles of that the color of my skin presents to me in the eyes of other people looking at me. I can do and I can be anything I want. And that's why those people gasped in the theater. Mm-hmm. Because I was doing that, and then I was doing this. I could do anything I want. Mm-hmm. I need to be bad. Mm-hmm. I can, I, I, I'm not here to say that my people are perfect. I'm here to say that my people are human. Mm-hmm. And look at them and evaluate them the same way that you evaluate people that look like you. So that's kind of slightly different. You see what I'm saying? No, I do understand. Yeah, the the complexities in humanity. Yes, the complexities. Yeah, you know, uh, um, I 
I'm not, because you know, it gets to a point, I mean, it, okay, as you can imagine, uh, with, with where you come from, is that um, there is an indication that you are what they, but that people know what to expect. But, uh, you know, uh, when, you know, I was, I was surprised that you come from a Eurasian background, not, not being able to see you, uh, just listening to you, just, uh, there's, there's, there's no limits. I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I was surprised because that's not the, the human being that I even have pictured in my head. All right. Right? Yeah, I see. It's like you, you could be anything, anything. And, and, and you know what? I shake off the shackles of my own people that tell me that I have to be that. Because that's a force on the other side as well. Right, exactly. And how did you, uh, so you grow up, did you grow up in Washington, D.C., or, or did you move to, to New York? Um, just tell me a little bit about, um, because I'm thinking about when you grew up and what that was like. And um, I had an odd upbringing. Um, my father was going to med school on the GI Bill, mm -hmm. so my mother was working to get my father through. She was the brilliant, she was the one that got my father through med school. Mm -hmm. um, but she was working to get him through med school. After he got through med school, he decided that he was going to start a practice in Buffalo, New York, because he's an underserved community. Mm -hmm. So his intention was to go to Buffalo, open up a practice, and then bring the family along. But um, he got a little distracted along the way, mm -hmm. and um, really, he just stayed there. And at that point, my mother had become a computer programmer back in the early days of computers. And uh, by the time he requested the family to come, uh, you know, with all his affairs and whatever he had going on there, my mother was like, well, uh, I don't think so. It's cold up there, and we have a light down here. It's like, <laughs> we're not going. So they split. Um, when I was a child, we, we, we grew up in what, as growing up, I thought was the ghetto, but it actually wasn't the ghetto. My parents picked my mother, had picked the neighborhood that um, was really like a, a center of like the black literati. I didn't even know that at the time. Our, our, our cross the street neighbors were, you know, that film The Butler? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but he, he lived across the street from us. Oh, wow. You know, we lived in a community with black architects and musicians. And I, I didn't know this until. It's another story, but until years later, that this particular neighborhood was <laughs> a spot for the black literati. I just thought we lived in, the, you know, the ghetto at a more peaceful time, you know. But, mm -hmm. you know, there was still were people, you know. I remember being out on the street, my mother calling me in because, you know, the two alcoholics in the block were shooting at each other, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when the, when the riots happened, you know, a lot of our neighborhoods got you know, kind of burned down and stuff. We were there, but we were in a certain section. And um, we were on the other side of town, which was, you know, Rockwood Park. And um, uh, one day, in my, I think it was about my, my sixth birthday, there was a, a, a mounted policeman on a horse. And, um, and he came over to us. And I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. 
So my mother scraped together a few funds and had my friends and I go to the park and um, take a riding lesson. And as a result, I found out where the barn was. And after school, that's where I spent all my time, was with horses. Oh. And at the beginning, the, um, the rooms would give me, you know, if I fucked out stalls, you know, for three hours, they let me ride for 20 minutes. And, you know, they'd say, put your heels down, hang on, do this and everything. And then after a while, the teachers would start to say, okay, look, I want you to show up and I'm going to give you a lesson. And that grew and then it got to the point where when people would come and have trail rides and stuff, they would say, hey, Jim, get on a horse, take these people on a trail ride. So I became like an employee and then I started exercising horses for um, rich families that had fleets of horses. Stable, but I started showing the horses, and I became um, a, a, quite a good rider. And that's the way I spent my um, my youth. It's, uh, I was equestrian. I was I was on a horse, and, um, and pretty much from the time that I started to the time that I went to college, I really never even seen um, another black person in a in a habit, you know, in, in jogfers and. I just want to go back. It sounds like good um, acting advice. Um, you know, um, keep your heels down and hang on. And, but I'm just thinking. Sorry, I'm being glib. But I'm just thinking about you know riding rhythms. And you don't. You want to make sure you don't get thrown. <laughs> just all these things. Um, but, but I think that on an unconscious level, even if it might not seem like it directly applies, maybe maybe it teaches you something about the listening and feeling, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't know why I love horses, mm -hmm. I, I really don't, and, and the funny thing is, oh, I don't think I, I, don't think I did love, I, I don't think I did love horses, I don't oh. think, I, I've thought about this many times, I think a horse, to me, was a race car, Oh. That's I, I, I don't think I was really, oh, it, it, yeah, that, that, it was like, I mean, jump, jumping a, a four foot or five foot fence was just cool as shit. Yeah. Look at a race car. You, you don't you don't have um, emotional attachments to your race car, do you? No, but that adrenaline is a kind of drug that even might be like uh, akin to acting on stage or something. I I, I imagine, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, but, but I've asked myself as an adult, it's like, what is it about horses? I was not the kind of kid that would, would bring an apple to my horse every day. I mean, I, first of all, I never owned a horse. I always rode other people's horses. But um, I, I, was not, uh, I, was, I was not attempting to make a horse my buddy. Mm -hmm. I was riding them. Yeah. I was flying on them, you know? Oh, that must be... Yeah, and that must be so great. And I and I feel, um, you know, uh, some people are now. I mean, have to have those experiences. But I think with you know growing up in cities and also the way um, children are sheltered so much now, a lot are like deprived of that. Well, like now everyone's deprived of it. We're all indoors. But um, I do feel it's unfortunate because I I didn't have uh, well I I rode a little bit sometimes, but it wasn't like. Thing, but I was allowed to go out my front door 
without being chaperoned everywhere, without having that anxiety of um, don't trust anyone. Like I'm still, and I'm, that's probably still with me, I like trust too many people. I'm too trusting. And it's a strange thing, and I think, and I, the only way I can figure out that nothing bad has really happened to me is that it's like I'm like a baby. I'm not like quite like a baby, but like in the same way you wouldn't really want to, unless you're really bad, do harm to a baby. <laughs> I'm just a little bit like that. Because I tend oh, to... Oh, I know, I know people like that. <laughs> yes. I even have, like, I have, like, a round face. You know, I even... So I think people don't harm me because of that. Um, because, I don't know, I just become fascinated by life. And so I feel like, oh, why would people lie? Or I mean, I just don't understand that perspective. Um, well, well so, but the, you know what, though? At, at its core, all of us, whether we want to admit to it, all of us, or like that anyway, mm-hmm. we may think that we have this hard surface, but, mm-hmm. you know, what do you think about all these people with guns in the Midwest that are, mm-hmm. you know, all this kind of stuff? They're, they're reacting they're reacting in the same way. They're trusting something that, that they shouldn't be trusting. Well, it's purely emotional, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, they're being taken for a ride. I think, uh, I think you should cherish um, your trusting nature. I mean, you know, it seems to me like you've made it a pretty long way and you're a lovely person. You're open. I mean, look at what you could lose if you were the opposite of that. Yeah, that's what I do feel. I feel like, and and I think that, you know, actors or the others involved in the arts, they are like that, to that, that way to a different degree. They have to protect themselves naturally. But I think that I feel like why should I feel like I would be contaminating myself? I would be losing an aspect of myself. So I feel like I could be smart about it to 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 protect myself, but I don't want to lose my spontaneity. As you say, I I actually smell the lemon peel, you know, and if I did it, right. yeah. But but you know, how about the fact that um, why would you want to bite who you naturally are? I mean, that's got to be, that's got to be hard. The, the only way that you can really fight who you naturally are is that something so traumatic happened to you that mm-hmm. it changed your whole perspective on your being. Sure. And, and that's, and I, and I think that that's really the criminals, for people who um, in some way harm innocence, you know, that has to be contaminate innocence. That's, uh, I, I don't, I can't understand it, you know, I can't understand I do want to talk about the, I mean, you mentioned uh, Six Degrees of Separation, John Guare. I want to speak about, I spoke about the NYPD Blue a bit, but I mean, amazing writers. You spoke about Spike Lee, but, you know, David Milch, what's what's it like to perform his words? I believe he's a genius, I just have to say. So um, I was wondering what that's like. Um, yeah, yeah, he's a very flawed genius. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, very flawed. It's like his genius. It's like, um, yeah, I mean, it's commonly brought up as being a genius, you know, but, you know, self-professed, you know, our whole second season, he was on heroin. It was, um, you know, it's the type of thing that, you know, like I say, I don't watch, but it's the type of thing that I can look back now at and say, um, wow, what an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, you have to understand artistically, 
when you're going through something, those thoughts don't enter into your head. It's about survival, mm-hmm. and it's about um, excellence, and it's about um, frustration. It's about um, um, feeling good when you go home because you conquered that scene or what have you. Um, the working conditions were very, very difficult because he's a writer that writes on the fly. Yeah, so so all that stuff that you you saw, um, it wasn't like you could go home and be prepared to go to work. Mm-hmm. No, when you every time you went to work, your pants were going to be pulled down around your ankles, and there was mm-hmm. no way to avoid it. Yeah. So, so it was a very fearful time mm-hmm. because I mean, who wants to work that exposed? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because we have good days, we have bad days difficult dialogue, um, reshoots, um, a a, a crazy genius boss Mm -hmm. that was very, very unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you're going through something like that, it's like you're going through a war. You're not thinking about the subsequent um, victory. You're thinking of survival. So what, what you were watching on that show with survival. And then it's even more amazing because your character, uh, I don't want to say it's stoic, but actually delivers with a lot of grace and I mean your pacing. And so I said like, it's like the, it's like the swan um, paddling furiously underneath the water, <laughs> but, but you communicate this kind of, it seems like ease. So it's know all of that that's going on in the background. That's, it's interesting. that's one of the most lovely things someone has ever said to me. Uh-huh. You, you're you're a good you're a good interviewer. Uh-huh. Um, that, that's one of the most lovely things that has been said. That you would even notice that. I, I'll give you an example. Uh-huh. Um, I, I was hired for the shoot show two years before we went on the air because uh-huh. um, Stephen had a lot of trouble getting it on the air because he was taking all these licenses with you know nudity and language and things like that. And he had to get it approved, and it took a very long time to get the show on the air. So I was on hold for two years before the show began. Well, when we finally decided, and I was quite frankly, I was surprised that he wanted me to do this job because I was too young in age to play the character that I was playing. Yeah. Much less me thinking that I would be Dennis Franz's boss. There was something that was patently kind of, um, it didn't work for me. I was, I was still a fairly young man when yeah. I took that role. Yeah, you so know this. So. They saw, they had to kind of um, convince me. I mean, I was even of the mind, it's like, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not old enough to do this. They're the ones that had to convince me. Mm-hmm. But once I signed up to it and realized that through working with, you know, other detectives in, in New York and what have you, and I thought, okay, well, this is a guy that he passed every exam exactly at the right moment. And then at a particular moment in his career, he was involved in some high-brow case that he saw, which then projected him even earlier into this position. I said, okay, mm-hmm. this could be possible. Mm-hmm. So once I accepted that, one of the things that I said to the guys is I said, I'm not interested in playing the typical boss that we've known throughout our TV career, which is like the Starsky and Hutch boss, the chops a cigar, 
the guys come in and say, I want to do this, and I yell at them and tell them you can't, they go out and do just the opposite, and at the end of the episode, I have to take all over my face. I said, I wasn't interested in that at all. I said, I want him to be someone that works off of intellect and passion and commitment uh, and has no need to raise his voice. No need. Because one of the things that I knew from my early, you know, theater work was the way that a person shows power is not by gesticulating and yelling and screaming. That's not where power comes from. If you want to be powerful on a stage, if the line is stop, okay, that's the line, the word stop, and someone is heading towards the door, if you want to be powerful, you whisper, stop. And the person, the other person has to turn around because it's in the script. But if you yell stop, that means that you have to yell stop to make that person. That means that, you know, but if you can do it by just, he's turned his back on you, he's walking out, and you just say, stop. And he has to stop. That's power, right? Yes. That's who I wanted the guy to be. So the battle that I continuously fought is the, um, that's where the dignity came from, is that he's never going to come out of his, um, you know, every once in a while, you could make him lose control. And that's interesting and fun. But by and large, if he was going to be this black man in this white man's world, he was going to support himself from the ideology that our parents always told us, which is you have to be better, you have to be more this, you have to be more that. He was going to have to be more, and he was going to have to be either eye-to-eye intellectually with his underlings, or above, like Michelle Obama would say, you know? And I must say, you know, popping my own collar here, um, I must say that after I created that character, that's what a black boss became uh-huh. on TV. That was the character that changed that, that paradigm. So, so yes, I'm proud of it. Yeah, it's interesting how, uh, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to uh, play a character for eight years and you know, create, add, you know, each, with each year, you know, different layers. And I mean, it's great to have a wonderful language and a wonderful class, uh, cast to, to, to play off of, but just keep on finding um, new things and things in the back history that you might not share, but you, it helps give it, you know, depth in your own imagination. And then what is it like then to uh, leave that character behind? And we don't know, is there kind of almost a grieving process? Now, when I left that character behind, I was so happy to leave it behind. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when, you know, after a certain amount of time, when the scripts come in and they're just um, a version of what you've already done, mm-hmm. there's no more questions. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I, I, I went for two more seasons just mm-hmm. reaping the financial benefits, you know, of, of doing that, you know? Yes. Maybe maybe I was two years late. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was ready to go. It wasn't mm-hmm. a grief process. It was like 
thinks I'm that guy, uh-huh. like a leader of men, and I am such not a leader of men. <laughs> I can barely lead my own son. <laughs> it's but that's the way I'm thought of. Yeah. But it's 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 strange that. But you must pick up some habit or things that you can call upon when you need when you need it. But, I mean, just thinking about some of your recent roles, you were talking about um, For Life, it's something, um, Soundtrack, um, and then these are like, uh, that's a, a musical, um, you know, how do you, do you, is, is that, so that's a, a stretch for you as well, or what do you enjoy about these other kind of roles? Well, if, if you talk about Soundtrack, one mm-hmm. of the things that I really liked about that one was that I was working opposite the uh, great actress. I have to call up a name. Um, <laughs> my brain panics, and this is the girl from Secrets and Lies, a woman from Secrets and Lies. Oh, let um, me. I know my um, my brain is a bit like that too. <laughs> so let me let me get it up. But anyway, go tell me about the story. <laughs> um, very very strong um, uh, actress, uh-huh. and she's really good reason I want to do it because I always love that movie Secrets and Lies, and uh-huh. I just wanted to work with her. But her character was very strong, and my character had a certain type of strength, but... Oh, yes, Marianne, I just have her name now. Marianne... Marianne Jean-Baptiste. Okay, yes, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Yes, okay. Marianne Jean-Baptiste, yes. 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 Conversation. 
conversation began, which was me going, at 62 years old, I'm starting to realize the depth of people's denial. I did not realize that deniability was so strong in human beings. I think that part of it, I mean, um, is that we, I mean, the whole thing about living as well is that you don't even want to think that, oh, we're going to die. So uh, that's that's the big denial anyway that keeps us like all optimistic and and not to think about that. But... um, I, yeah, I, maybe it's like an act of the imagination or the things that we have to tell ourselves so that we don't feel like, oh, yeah, there's a there's an end to this or there's, um, I don't know, it's it's very strange. Um, yeah, but, but, but isn't it wonderful as an artist to uh, be able to free yourself of that and, and, and explore it as mm-hmm. opposed to just being a victim of it? Yeah, I think that that's a real gift, and particularly for actors, is the chance to. I mean, writers or different artists may do it in different ways, but actors can. You can literally live many lives in a physical, imaginative sense, and in, in many ways. And so, um, and and that kind of maybe makes you for more um, open to like the inevitable inevitable ends, because you've already lived many endings. And you already have like died in those roles or whatever, and then you've gotten up again. So it's kind of like, um, like you're 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 freed of that uh, a, a little bit, perhaps. A little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because you know, like the, the play that I was talking to you about, the AIDS play. Yeah. You know, he dies in that play, mm-hmm. and you know, you <laughs> you had to on some level you had to go there. Yeah ridiculous that you would put yourself in that situation but it's like when think about what these nurses and doctors are feeling right now mm-hmm. <laughs> they have to go there and go there and go there let me ask you a question yeah. um when, when you think of a, a of a beautiful film what do you think of what what film are you thinking of oh i don't know about the i don't know that i have like a favorite beautiful film um I mean, there's some things that are beautiful on the level of cinematography. It's very hard for me to pick one. Do you have a? Do you have one yourself? Well, whenever I ask that question, it's like you know, you notice that you misquoted me because I didn't say favorite. I'm not favorite, but when I think of a beautiful film, I don't, I don't, I don't know because there are films that I I enjoy like that are beautifully shot, but like Sunset Boulevard, but they would be like bleak in terms of their view of humanity um and then there's just beautifully shot films like i think um like for every shot is like almost like an edward hopper painting like that a one car wife film in the mood for love but there's so many i mean these are just some that came but i haven't i yes. haven't been able to pick just one that i thought of you know well oftentimes for me it's like one of the the, the last that i love so many films mm-hmm. it's it's like the last one yeah. that I saw. And um, recently, we um, watched the, uh, the TV series Giri Haji. I haven't Giri seen Haji. that yet. Oh, my gosh. So, so beautiful. Uh-huh. So beautiful. Uh, that's what keeps me going as an artist. I have a, I have a thing as an artist whereby, um, just like I don't watch myself, mm-hmm. um, 
Standards are important. It's strange because when I was growing up and I was reading, I, I grew up very much like on a canon and I only would read um, classics. But I mean, I also modified that. I mean, now I understand that quality exists in the contemporary, but I really only, and I would read mainly and many things in translation and it was a kind of a perfection. But now, of course, there's I see that there's a lot of contemporary classics too. But um, it's strange, and I think. Did you ever read War and Peace? Yes, <laughs> and um, maybe some people wouldn't enjoy it, or I, I don't know, or find that um, too painful now. I don't know what the attention spans, uh, attention spans these days, but uh, and now now I am like the circle has widened, but I do think it's important to have standards because on some level, then you do. You know, you want to be demanding of yourself in the same ways, right? Yeah, and, and, and one of the other things is is that if I only view those things, that's all that my body knows. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, if um, I've seen one Marvel movie, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I had to see Black Panther just because yeah. of the political aspects of it. Um, it's I have become a fan of that genre, and if I'd seen any more of that genre, I might think that there was something to glean from that particular film. But I could say, no, there's nothing there. It's funny you mention, I, I, not because of particular um, admiration for um, uh, superhero movies, but I, I mean, when I was very, very young, I mean, a teenager, I worked for... Um, Alexander Sulkin, who made the, the Superman movies. Um, but he also, I mean, he's not a director, he's a producer, but he's very much involved in that, and he also produced, but he also produced with Orson Welles, The, the Trial, so, um, and was behind, you know, getting that done, and the idea behind it, but, um, so it was strange, that was my first experience of what, what a film producer, what the film world is like. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> anything wrong because you know especially when you think about um, superhero films before it was actually a genre because I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with any genre no Superman movies weren't, I mean, it was groundbreaking and that it started a whole, you know, money, that's like how Hollywood makes money now, but um, it wasn't, The Process is a great film, because it's Orson Welles, but um, the Superman films weren't, weren't the best, but, you know, Marlon Brando got a paycheck out of it, it's some great people in it, but, um, 
not their finest hour. Let me tell you. Yeah. Let me tell you why that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's because that's like um, that's like forging ahead and not knowing. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that things shouldn't be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You can do ridiculous. I like some ridiculous stuff. I mean, do you ever see um um uh, what's the name of that film um for um. The, the one of the, the, the English film about the terrorist um, uh, that caused so much controversy for a lion. Oh no, I have seen that. Yeah, yeah, for bungling terrorist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it came along at the wrong time when mm-hmm. people weren't interested in it. They thought it was so subversive, but really, it's just like for bungling wannabe jihadist. Mm-hmm. You know, ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I, things, things can be ridiculous. I mean, I have a sense of humor. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just as stupid as the next guy. Um, but when I, when I mention the whole model craze, I'm talking about the machine mm-hmm. that keeps telling the same exact story over the same myth over and over and over again. You know, so at the point that you were working with them, they, they didn't know what they were doing. They were, it's like, Okay, a guy that can fly and blah, 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 you know. Why not? Mm-hmm. But now it's a, it's a machine. Yeah, it's... um. I find it strange because there's so there is artistry behind I'm in terms of the special effects and the people who have to make those things like you know look convincing they're implausible impossible, um, but it's just it's so strange because I just think about how sometimes something can be so compelling without all of that or if you look back to um, say a Stanley Kubrick two thousand and one. And and you've seen the models that he managed to make look look like you know um, spacecraft, and they're just it's nothing. There's no there's no special effects. It's a model, and yet you know the artistry is in like he could make that into a whole world. You know. Um, well, well, I mean, once again, when you talk about the artistry of it, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've always con- uh, thought about with this CGI stuff mm-hmm. is that it's it's no different. Than Buck Rogers, mm-hmm. you know, when you have the spaceship and then you have the uh, filament, you know, holding it up and it's like, you know, it's got the dark background that's just kind of bopping along and everybody knows that there's strings attached to the, the rocket ship and it's just a model. I believe that the CGI is the same exact thing because everybody knows mm-hmm. that those armored um, rhinoceroses that people are riding on and stuff like that, that that's not a real rhinoceros. It's the same as the, the, the filament attached to the rocket ship. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's strange because it's quite, you know, awesome in its in undertaking, but ultimately it can, it can result in a lack of um, it not being as impressive because every scale or every little, every, every nuance is shown. And so it's not... Um, you know, as terrifying or, or awesome as it might be. Um, well, well, the fact of the matter is, in terms of the, the films that I love, mm-hmm. um, um, if, if you want to, because, you know, you, you would think that if you're making a thing about the end of the world, right, mm-hmm. it should be horrifying, right? Mm-hmm. If you're watching it and it's a movie, it should be horrifying, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> That's what we're afraid of, right? Mm-hmm. The end of the world, right? Yet... You, you sit there and you watch the Marvel thing, and it's like this: it, 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 there's only acceleration. 
You know what I mean? It's only like a, a roller coaster ride. It's not. It's not real to people. But you can take um, a, a documentary. You know, um, what five broken cameras? You can you can take you can take some film. That, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian collaboration or something like that in the first film mm-hmm. had people like basically just like biting their their their, their hands. It's true because it's not. It doesn't feel edited. It feels quite intimate and and um, naked. And um, I think that that's one thing that if you're going back full circle, what we're talking about, like the the importance of the arts, and one thing that we're feeling now, and the hunger for um, live theater or intimate experiences that we're not, you know, we're deprived of, you know, through necessity these days. It's it's that that it can be taken in in one breath. Or on theater, it's you you've, you t- you're taken through the whole thing from beginning to end. It's all of a piece. There's no chance for it to be doctored in an editing room. You know the excitement is happening in front of you. The magic is there, right? Right, right. And um, so I just think it, what what a wonderful gift to have. You know, spent your. Um, your life doing it because as I understand you didn't really have this your first job was really acting oh well you were a groom sorry you were you were minding horses <laughs> but <laughs> yeah but that didn't count though like a kid you know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. but so so how I mean how lovely to have spent one's whole life so I guess I'm just like um you know I want to make sure that I hit certain notes you know because this is an educational initiative and we've been talking about what both value in the arts and with you know, talking about the future and what it holds the end of the world and other things but as you think about you know education technology all this rapid change in the environment and really the kind of world we're leaving our children the next generation what do you feel are some ways we might improve our current systems um we're seeing a bit of breaking the systems now so what are some things that we might do to, to improve those so that we might build a better tomorrow. This is going to sound so pretty Pollyannish. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, if, if, if we could, um, if we could realize that we're all the same on this planet mm-hmm. and realize that um, we have a stadium of people in the United States or Spain, people in Greece, or we have a stadium of people in Kenya, that there will be the same percentages of saints, the same percentages of thieves, the same percentages of doctors. It will be the same percentage. Mm-hmm. We, we, are all, we are all the same. Mm-hmm. We, we point as if you know, the other is like one thing. We don't think of ourselves as one thing, but we point to other people as if they're, they're one thing. No, we're just creatures on this earth trying to, to survive. And until, you know, because since we're globalized now, um, until we can learn to um, share and see people as we see as ourselves, we, 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 we clearly don't have any other options. 
you know, to give others the the privilege that we give ourselves in our own in our own mind to imagine the complexities in others. Well, I mean, come on. We knew that all those people fleeing Syria mm-hmm. were not all just terrorists. Mm-hmm. We knew that. We 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 know. We knew that um, the Mexican migrants that are here mm-hmm. are not nearly any percentage of rapists and murderers. Mm-hmm. We, we we can't allow ourselves to to think like that in global society because if somebody sneezes over here, it's echoed on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can't understand that. My son gave me a quote the other day. I think it came off the top of his head, too. He said, the best place to hide is in plain sight in front of people that don't know what they're looking at. Let me say that again. The best place to hide is in plain sight in front of people that don't know what they're looking at. People have got to learn what they're looking at. I think I think that's so. I think that's so important. That doesn't at all sound Pollyannish. I mean, and it's it's important. I mean, we say these things, but to really understand that, I think that that's the that's the reason why we're here, really. It's, it's really the it's the only way to go. Mm-hmm. It's the only way to go if we if we want to survive. Especially now, and the things have escalated, and that we're a global society, and uh, I, you know, I try to hope that this is, in a way, a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they talk about the, the canals in Venice are, are starting mm-hmm. to run clean now. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the skies over India are, are the people are seeing the skies for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the environment's going to win. Yeah. It's really telling us that we're the problem. Um, yeah. Or the way we behave yeah. is the problem. Yeah. But, but, but how much enlightenment do you need mm-hmm. to be able to, to be able to admit to that, you know? I mean, okay, going back to the whole artistic thing. That is why my that is why James McDaniel is not important to the characters. Mm-hmm. That is why the character is the only important thing. Mm-hmm. The human being is the important thing. It, it is not about me. Mm-hmm. You know, we we, we got to start making it less about us and, and, and more about us, mm-hmm. the big us. And, and I know that that's true. I mean, it's like, sorry, but you know, as much as I know anything, I know that is true. We have got to share. The Secrets is not huge accounts in a, in a, in a Cayman Island account. That is not the solution. It is to share. But I think I think that it's it's so important, and I think I, and I, I want to thank you for all that you've shared and and your insights and yeah, your humility and the service to the roles um, you've played um, and for this perspective um, adding your perspective that allowed us to imagine the other 
Um, thank you, James McDaniels, um, for uh, all the characters you've played, which have invited us to see the humanity and complexity of life. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Well stated, and um, thank you for having me, and it was a pleasure meeting you. It's the strangest timing for an interview I've ever had, <laughs> but it's been a lovely afternoon. <laughs> This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Uwa Hayes. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Andalis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. 